there's a lot of depth to Lady Bird and her character, but this mom is like so intensely worried about so many different things. Um, and she's like working her ass off to try and like make ends meet and her husband loses his job and he's struggling with depression and her older son lives with her. Like her life is so intensely complicated and difficult. And so I think that she's like the character is incredibly interesting to me. And also like her, the performance that Lori gives is perfect because I think that there's the perfect amount of like exhaustedness. Like she's just so tired and she's been trying so hard. And that's very believable the entire time. Like you see this like instant snapping, like Lady Bird does the slightest thing and Lori's character just like can't handle it. And I think that that's, that's like, what it's like to be a parent who's so stretched thin. Welcome back to the Formative Films Project in part two of our Coming of Age series. I am your host, Braden Shaw. Last episode, we dealt with coming-of-age stories surrounding children and the early days of youth. This time around, we'll look a little older, to the dog days of high school and those oft-maligned teen years. First up... My name is Sam Valdez, and my favorite movie is Menace to Society. Even though it had been a minute since his last watch, Menace to Society quickly jumped out when Sam Valdez, a recent KU grad, was thinking of his favorite movie. This film did speak out to me right when you uh, messaged me just because of just the relevance today in society, just as like history teachers would always say, history happened because it repeats itself. So it's just, it's really interesting to look back at it. And because in the film, it does come full circles as Kane, main character, they show him growing up in um, that bad environment and showing a scene where Purnell, um, who's a figure in his life, who watches over him, um, there's a house party and he comes outside and Purnell's like gives him his gun to hold. And you fast forward, Purnell's in prison and Kane's grown up and Purnell has a kid and Purnell's uh, girlfriend is has a good relationship with Kane, and then it just becomes full circles as there's another scene as Kane's letting Purnell's son hold his gun. So it's just that you know, history repeating itself, and just like now you look at today in society with all the bl- police brutality, it's just it's interesting. And you mentioned how this is a cycle, and I love that. I, that was a great word choice there because I really think that applies to this. And it's just kind of the beginning of the cycle. How Kane's growing up, you know, he said when the riots stopped, the drugs started, you know, and Purnell starts looking after him to show if it shows a mom and dad. Um, and, and it kind of shows the beginning there, you know, when he was a kid and he goes out to that party and gets his first drink of beer, holds the gun, and kind of shows how he might have some maybe PTSD, might have some sort of how he, he kind of is brought into this cycle. How do you feel like that kind of, uh, I guess, laid the foundation for Kane as a character and how he was kind of brought into this system, whether he liked it or not? Right, and and that's like a big touching point, I think, of the movie. It's just like, it's just the circle of life in that like era and where they, um, they're from in South Central, where it's just, you get stuck in that cycle where, 
that's going back to the point with holding the gun as a kid and then fast forward he's holding Purnell's son with the gun where and there's just like it's just like there's opportunities for him to leave as he's like his friends get, gets a scholarship to Kansas you know but he doesn't want to pass it up and by the time he decides the time's right for him to get out, it's too late. And that's just, that's what makes the movie so good just because it's just the three principles that it goes over of greed, loyalty, and revenge within like that life cycle that they go through. And it just, it's ever revolving and it's still to this day. Sam, who considers himself an avid movie watcher, first watched Menace to Society with his dad on cable back during his early high school days. At the same time... Menace to Society, I don't want to say it's a film you don't want to rewatch. It is a great film, but it's not one of those films where like you can just put it on as a background noise, you know? I don't, it's just, it's a very intense film, but like it's one of those movies where it's just like, it hits home every time and like, it shows like it's just like honestly like I keep going back on it's good cinematography on how they're able to like paint such a real picture with good acting. Menace to Society, written and directed by Albert and Alan Hughes, premiered in 1993 and follows the story of friends Kane and O-Dog, two teenagers trying to make their way on the streets of South Central Los Angeles. They get wrapped up in drug dealing and violence, ultimately leading to several deaths and proverbial forks in the road, whether to carry on this dangerous path or find a way to escape it all. The film doesn't take long to set the tone either, opening with Kane and O-Dog robbing a corner store. Mm -mm. No, and that's what, it's just impressive because like you don't see that in movies nowadays, like to be able to pull that type of scene off that early and it's just, it's just right in your face because it's just saying like O-Dog and Kane, menace to society. It's like opening up that bottle of malt liquor before paying for it, you know? Like what, it, what happens in that scene wasn't <laughs> like the clerk, like the store clerks, they didn't deserve that. But it just shows you just how like, you know, like South Central, it's just like, a, <laughs> it's just crazy. It's just like, the menace to society is just like right there so early. This coming of age story also deals with faith and mentorship, particularly in how both of those can directly influence the person you grow up to be. There's a line that um, Kane's grandfather, because you know, obviously he lived with his grandparents after his, I think he said his dad died in a drug deal and his mom died of an overdose. Um, but his grandpa asked him this line, and I'm just curious what you think about and how it kind if it kind of helped define this film. He asked him, Kane, do you care whether you live or die? First of all, just what do you feel like the power of that question kind of resides over this movie? No, yeah, and there's just that line makes like, there's like, if you get on like uh, Reddit or whatnot, like people think that it's told, that like film's meant to be told in an alternate reality because Kane's already dead. Because it does like, I keep saying it, but it does come full circles because like he says after that quote, it's like, I don't know, you know? And it's just, it's just, like I said earlier when we are talking, going back to like, it really reminds me of Lionhood. I mean, not Lionhood, Lion King, I'm thinking of Robin Hood. I was watching that last night. Um, 
Lion King with Scar and um, Simba, you know, like it's kind of like a stretched, but like Scar can represent like either like, yeah, O-Dog or he just represents just the streets coming up, you know, because going back to Hamlet, like, you know, the prince, they wanted to take him down and just that's what it was like, I think, as they're trying to tell the story with just like back in the 70s with the war on drugs starting and the like evolution of crack and just that's yeah i think one of their friends name is sharif and he you know has converted to islam and he he kind of keeps bringing i, I know one point they one of their friends i think it's stacy said you know that black power shit don't play in this ride and how he keeps trying to basically bring them all down the right path. You know, like you mentioned earlier, really try to bring uh, Kane to Kansas with them just to get off the streets. And how do you feel like, or what role do you think faith plays in this movie? Cause you know, you mentioned earlier, there was a Bible verse um, from uh, I think it's Sharif's dad that you mentioned earlier and just how, you know, everybody's wearing a cross around their neck, but they, ha- they still have this feeling of invincibility. Um, how, how do you feel like faith kind of plays a role in this movie? Right. Um, that's an interesting question. I think they paint faith as just, yeah, it does play a big role because it starts off the movie with like go, going back with Purnell and Kane and Kane in the future. But then like you look at like Kane's dad in like the beginning of the movie with, um, can't remember who it was, but they're just playing cards and just the dispute, the dispute breaks out and he kills them. And just like, I can't remember if Kane, when he was little, if he was there, I'm trying to remember the scene. It's been a little bit since I've seen the movie, but like he was in the house when it happened. So it just, it kind of foreshadows that. So I think I like the, movie relies heavily not on faith but it just talks about like the circle of life essentially within south central within coming up with that like being surrounded within those people like it's a survival of the fittest so i think that's how they painted it out best um what did you feel like how this movie kind of used the roles of mentors to kind of help i guess help shape these young guys I mean, it's just like, it just kind of going back to what like you asked about faith. It just, it shows that the way they mentored them where Kane at the early age, he grew up in that environment around Purnell, but just, just being that early on in his life, being brought up that way, it's hard to get out of that cycle with those friends like Harold, his cousin, um, Sharif and um, I'm blanking. What, what was the name of the football? Play? I just football player for Kansas. That's how I Stacy. Like he had those friends, you know, and like they had that conversation, and like, yeah, who who would want to come to Kansas? But like, it was a better opportunity in life. But just the way he was mentored, he didn't see the bigger picture. He didn't see more to life. So I think it plays a big role with just showing like who you like 
the people you have in your life define the type of person you are. And I think that's how the film wanted to display that. Definitely. definitely. And um, as you kind of mentioned, you know, getting to Kansas, which by the way, I had no idea Kansas would play such a role in this movie. Um, yeah, but um, but like one of my favorite scenes in this movie is when, you know, Purnell has been, he's been locked up for the majority of this film, but they have that final phone call um, between, uh, between Kane and Purnell. And you know how basically Purnell says, you know what, I know how Ronnie feels about you. Go ahead to Atlanta with her. You kind of have my blessing basically. Um, just, just what do you, what do you think of that scene and how that's kind of the final push that Kane needs to actually basically get out of the streets? I think it, like just in general, it was a good scene from the movie. Like the movie's filled with so many good scenes, but that particular, like it took like that realization just being that close and that scare from earlier with the whole uh, tape. So um, from the uh, store in the beginning of the movie. So it's powerful because it's it shows that no matter like like going back to the scene with Stacy and Sharif, like he had that early opportunity in life but he ignored it and he waited till it's too late because of uh, the uh, brother of that one girl. I'm blanking on his name too, but he's in a lot of these movies. Um, but that was also an interesting scene. The first time I saw it, I like that was very first good foreshadowing, but that's just how I saw it. Just like it took too, it, like too long. Right. And then, of course, a little later on, uh, it, it reminded me, uh, again, back to Boys in the Hood, um, just when Ricky got shot, um, you know, and just how how Kane and Kane and Sharif and I think maybe somebody else end up getting shot in the drive by. How do you feel like or what do you think of that that ending and just how that again, like we keep hammering back to just how it kind of fully showed the the full circle, that cycle of this life? Right. I mean. <laughs> it's just I thought it was interesting with just having like Jay Pickett's son in that scene because that's the picture they're displaying and with like Kane like diving for his son that like they want you to see that because like they're not shooting at the kid like they're clearly shooting at Kane so and then Sharif, it just it just shows just like like going back to what we talked about, like the people you are friends with and that you are categorized with is this part of you. So Sharif, like he had his Muslim beliefs, like in his dad in the movie, like he didn't believe in the lifestyle that Kane was living, but just being associated with him cost him his life. So. I think like just that scene, like, <laughs> I mean, it gets me every time just because like, you know, it just like, like, cause it's just so realistic because like, like even like this was happening in the seventies, like still to this day and like expanded from South Central, like this happens on a daily that like people don't really like pay much attention. 
Right. And then you mentioned it earlier, but I wanted, I know I told you I was going to come back to it. Um, you know, there are a couple scenes and a couple run-ins um, with the cops in this movie. And, um, you know, there's one scene in particular near the end where Kane and I remember if Sharif or Kevin, they get, they get basically thrown in the back of a cop car and beat up and left on the side of the road. Um, and then Ronnie ends up basically having to explain the concept of racism and police brutality to Anthony at one point too, um, after that event happens. What do you think of the portrayal um, of not only cops, but also just how, you know, prison, as Kane kind of mentions, was almost like a rite of passage. You know, everybody he knew ended up in prison at one point or another. Um, what do you think of what do you think of the portrayal of law enforcement in this movie? All right. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say accurate, but just more keep going back to the word realistic, but just more realistic because this is happening in the era of Rodney King. So this was happening like decades ago and just still to the fact that like, we still have these conversations and we're still dealing with like the George Floyds and, and then like Ferguson, like, like we don't even talk about that that much, but like that wasn't that long ago. But, and just like going back to the like rite of passage of prison, like you said, like it took him all the way up to the conversation with Purnell to realize that there's more to life but he didn't know that before because of like we talked about within mentorship. So it's just interesting because everything like ties together, like, and it's still relevant to like society today. Again, that realism and that authenticity is what drew Sam to this movie initially and why he would encourage more people to check it out. Definitely depends on their mood. <laughs> um, but just a movie about an alternate reality about coming up, and, like a coming to life movie or coming to life, but like, it's not like, uh, or coming of life, I'm sorry. But it's like, I don't, it's not a hard movie to pitch, but you got to come into it with an open mind. And like I just said, it's an alternate reality to what a lot of people have experienced. And like, it's just, it's interesting if you want to like get really historical in it and like look back at like, like I keep saying the war on drugs, but like that is just like the era it's talked about. And like when you hear these rappers talk about it nowadays, it's telling the history lesson in a way of saying this is how life is with these type of conditions. So it's just very interesting to look at how it stands relevant in time and coming of age. Our next film deals with a bit of a broader time frame and a heavier emphasis on romance, but still certainly fits in the description of a coming of age story. My name is Lourdes Calusha Aguirre, and my favorite movie is Moonlight. Initially, Lourdes Calusha Aguirre, a recent graduate at KU and aspiring filmmaker herself, was deciding between Lady Bird and Moonlight for her quote-unquote favorite movie. She ended up going with the latter A24 coming-of-age film because... 
it came out in 2016, which was like the year I graduated high school or the year I was a senior in high school. And so for me, it like, I was like, still like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to major in. And so that made me actually want to pursue film. Um, but yeah, Ladybird also gave me like this really intense feeling of like, of like, I'm not alone. <laughs> um, and so I definitely relate to like all those coming of age movies. I love coming of age movies because I feel like, I mean, I'm not like, a teenager anymore but like I kind of feel that way in the sense that I'm like feeling like all this angst about like who I am my identity and seeing somebody else go through that and like have their pitfalls and come out all right is always very inspiring and very comforting like I feel like Frances Ha is also like a coming of age movie and so like anything in that genre where I see somebody like struggle to find themselves I love oh and don't worry we'll touch on both Lady Bird and Frances Ha later on in the series now, while Moonlight certainly was a catalyst for her career goals, Lourdes's passion for filmmaking started early on. I started making like videos with my friends in middle school just for fun, and I would like edit them in like Windows Movie Maker. And then I decided to take like a film class in high school because I enjoyed doing that so much. And I had like a very Dead Poet Society teacher who like really connected me to film and made me think about it really deeply. And I remember like most adolescents being super, didn't know how to like express myself, didn't know how to like handle all the feelings I was having. And I felt like watching movies made me like feel like other people were there with me. Like I remember we watched Rebel Without a Cause and I was like, wow, I feel so angsty like this. And somebody else knows that I'm angsty and I don't have to like rely on other people. I can just watch movies. <laughs> and so, I just really like that you could like find somebody who was going through what you were going through in a movie and that would like help you find like context in your life. And that's how like I feel now is that, you know, if I'm like going through something really hard, I'll like watch a movie and whatever struggle they're going through, I can like find some comfort in seeing it like dramatized in a way that's like really beautiful and like seeing a character who's flawed and then knowing that I'm flawed, it just makes me feel more comfortable and be like, okay, I'm not the only person who's like this. Like whoever made this movie knows what this is like to feel this way. And I don't hate this character. So I guess it's not such a terrible thing to feel this way. Moonlight, which famously won best picture at the 2017 Oscars is written and directed by Barry Jenkins. The film is told in a fairly rigid three-act structure and follows a black man named Chiron from his days growing up in South Florida as he struggles with his identity, sexuality, and being comfortable in his own skin. And, if I can interject here, it's a prime example of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences getting it right, at least once La La Land producer Jordan Horowitz found the right envelope. I've seen it like six times, so I want to say that I, I watched it after it won Best Picture, actually. I hadn't watched it up to that point. Um, I don't know why. I think I wasn't, like, a huge movie watcher. Even though I love, like, some movies, I wasn't, like, going out of my way to watch them. <laughs> um, and after it won Best Picture, I had seen La La Land, and I loved it. And since it beat Best Picture, I, or beat La La Land for Best Picture, I was like, okay, now I have to watch it. So I just watched it by myself, I'm pretty sure. And I think... The first thing that like struck me about it was just like the cinematography and how beautiful it was, especially like, I feel like if you see a movie where it's taking place somewhere that's like kind of like a poorer area and 
you kind of like have like a you see like grime and like it's like just like gritty and that wasn't what it was at all to me it was like just it just saw like beauty in in the place and the people and I thought that was amazing and I love the score and also I think like I already kind of knew what it was about so I wasn't struck by like the plot but I think I was like impressed by how it treated the characters and like had so much empathy for them and didn't judge them because I think I was thinking of it as like I don't know something where because people had talked about like the representation aspect so much and how it was like groundbreaking that I was thinking like oh this is going to be about these different identities that the main character has but it wasn't like about them they were just like surrounding him and affecting his life but it was about him and his like emotional experience and his identity like and not in like a politicized way um and so I think that's what I liked about it and I just remember like just going along with like kind of like the love story of it and just being like this is amazing this is so beautiful I, and I hadn't seen that many movies up to that point. Like, so I was also like, just like, this is incredible. I just, I don't think I'd ever like seen a movie like that. And I just remember being like, this is my new favorite movie. You mentioned you've seen this six times. Um, what, what about it in particular makes you want to go back to it so often? Because I wanted to share it with other people. So I would convince somebody to watch, somebody else to watch it with me. Um, and so that kind of ended up as I watched it six times. Um, yeah, I think I just like always want people to watch it because I think a lot of times when you are making something with like a heavy um, subject matter, like, you know, his mom is like battling addiction and he's like like facing like a lot of violence. Um, people like are like oh this is gonna be like such a tough thing to watch and it's like gonna make me feel bad and it's gonna make me feel guilty and I feel like that's why people didn't watch it and that's why I didn't watch it for a while um but I want people to like see the way that we can tell stories about things that are difficult and not make it all pain and suffering but like see the beauty in somebody's life what did you think of the music choices in this movie and how they kind of play a character themselves? Yeah, I like listen to the soundtrack all the time. And this is like, Nicholas Bertel's music just got me into actually like listening to movie scores. Um, and sorry, I was just thinking about the social network score for some reason, <laughs> which is another one of my favorites. But I like, like again, like when I first watched this movie, I wasn't super into film studies and I wasn't somebody who would like track like a director or like a composer but when I watched this one I was and that's why I was like oh Barry Jenkins I'm gonna remember this name and like watch the next thing he does and all this stuff and so I think I was the same way with Nicholas Bertel because the score was so gentle and like I just had always heard like a big orchestra and all of it was like I would just hear like a note and it was just like beautiful. And I was in orchestra in high school. So I would just like picture like playing that one note. And it was just like, it wasn't like anything I had heard before that where it felt like overly composed. It was just like, yeah, very like soft 
and but then like at other times it would be like so dramatic but I, I, I didn't feel like it was ever like a big production it felt like it was like just so in tune with the characters and not like something that they had like superimposed onto it um and then I felt the same way about the um, Beale Street soundtrack there's one song I think it's Agape off of that soundtrack or the score that's like just stupidly beautiful like I would listen I think it came out I don't know if this is true I want to say like the first song came out before the movie or I listened to it before the movie and I was like this is it like <laughs> I, I just couldn't believe like how incredible it was and um I think like that paired with the cinematography like was just beautiful enough and then they like layered on that amazing story and the acting it was I just feel like it didn't do too much. It wasn't like doing heavy lifting where it was like coming in and telling me like, you should feel this way. But it was just like, like, like I picture like a little like vibrating like string and it's like, tied. this is so corny. It's like tied to like the character's heart or something like that's the sound that the heart is creating. <laughs> um, but that's kind of how I felt about it. Yeah, and then even on top of that, um the richness of this kind of plays in with the color choices too, of course. Um, you know, these rich purples and blues. And I mean, that line from Mahershala um, Ali character, uh, Mahershala Ali's character, Juan, where he said, you know, when his, uh, I think it was his grandma or his mom back in Cuba said, in moonlight, black boys look blue. Um, and then of course the, you know, in between the different uh, transitions from Chiron's life, you know, between Little and Chiron, there's a flashing blue light. And then between Chiron and black as a flashing uh, red light, I think. Um, so what did you think of the the color choices in this movie and how they kind of helped evoke some of those like deep stirring emotions, if you will? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, I think was like very like shot like at night, like in like things that were like, well, okay. So there would be scenes that were like really, really bright. Like I'm picturing like when he's driving um, back to Liberty City I think that's where they were and um it's like really really bright um but then I think at like the last shot when you see little like turn to the to face you and it's just yeah all blue and purple and I don't know I think you're right like that line in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue which is also the title of um the play that it's based on um obviously like had something to do with it and then I think also um like it, it makes me think again like something like gentle about it which is like you're not casting the super harsh lights the only other time I think about like a really bright daylight is um when he comes to see his mom and she like walks out to meet him um in this like apartment complex and she's like her hair is like like all over the place and she's like smiling at him and like it's like it's like you can hear her voice but she, you don't see her talking yet and it's just like so harsh and it breaks with like all these moments where I think and I think it was like the scene before that where he was with Kevin at the beach um and it's just like the the nighttime seems to like kind of be this place where things aren't like so like you know, like when things are hit by like a harsh light, there's a lot of contrast. It's like very black and white, but the nighttime lets it be like more on this gradient. And I feel like there's this part where like, it's usually it's like sneaky, but like a good sneaky <laughs> where he can like 
do things that he wouldn't be able to do in the daylight or just like like the the walls kind of come down like when he that lost that last shot is that's what it feels like to me is that like oh sorry I'm getting like a cold <laughs> that last shot just feels like he's just a kid and he's not being viewed by anybody else even though he's like looking right in the camera but like he can actually be himself because there's like nobody else watching and I feel like that's something that is more like at night because you're like in the shadows or there's not like some kind of like surveillance um really bright light on you uh, yeah, and you, and you mentioned you mentioned the cinematography a few times, and that, and I kind of wanted to hit on that before we get more into the plot elements of this. Um, you know, Barry Jenkins, I feel like um, with his camera choices, he I feel like he he has a very heavy focus on intimacy. You know, with the with those close ups and those direct, like almost looking directly into camera. Does this? He does it in Moonlight and also in Beale Street. I think even more, maybe even more dramatically in Beale Street. Um, and of course, when we when we first open up to this movie, you see Juan driving, and then you just have that rotating shot, just all the way around, kind of seeing this whole community. Um, what did you think of the cinematography, more specifically, in this movie, and just how how that kind of helped portray like the intimate uh, story that they was telling? Yeah, I thought like so trying to think of like a lot of it was for me like that light that I talked about like how it would be nighttime but you could like see like the shine on people's faces and people are like very like much glowing in this movie um and yeah a lot of it was just how it was like shot at night but it never felt like grimy it always felt like just beautiful even though that's like a very general word I don't know how else to say it like it was like gentle with people and it didn't like it chose specifically when to light somebody harshly um and like I'm thinking of like in the school like those fluorescent lights just like making everything but it still wasn't like it didn't feel like gritty ever and I I think there was like a lot of like um I don't know I'm trying I forget the word but like when you'll see Oh my God. Like a lens flare. <laughs> there was like a good amount of that, but it was like very, um, I think it was like a more subtle lens flare <laughs> for like the fluorescent lights. Um, oh, I think another part that a shot that like stuck with me was um, when he comes into the classroom and he picks up the chair. <laughs> I think it was just like following him and yeah. I think I like didn't really know even like the word cinematography before I saw this movie. And then I was like, oh, that's the cinematography. <laughs> and just that I thought that it was like, it was taking things that like wouldn't be very beautiful, like a high school classroom under fluorescent lights and making it like actually have like a color palette and like just, yeah, seeing, seeing the beauty in it. Uh, yeah, not not quite a not quite a J.J. Abrams lens flare in this, um, <laughs> but uh, you know one one thing that I kind of uh, noticed throughout this movie is just this idea of um, Chiron his his safety net, you know, and his, this feeling of protection or lack thereof, you know. I, I mean, he's got he's kind of got a rough home life, obviously, and he finds that 
finds that uh, safety in um, Juan and Teresa's home. And then of course, when Juan dies, that kind of goes away a little bit. And then of course, as we see him later on, he kind of walls himself off here. Um, what, what did you think of how the movie kind of portrayed Chiron's, uh, uh, I guess, safety or lack thereof, and like that, that almost need for protection um, throughout this movie? Yeah, I feel like for most of the film, he's like pretty alone and he's like trying to protect protect himself like i think the first scene is him like running into what's essentially like a crack house and like trying to find safety there <laughs> um which i think like already says a lot about what is safety to him and like and the fact that he was like this is a this is a better place for me to be than outside there um and like i said like for a lot of the film especially um during like the last uh third of it he's very much like built himself up and like built these walls around him um and so the the part where i think he's like most vulnerable is definitely that scene on the beach with kevin and i like that like that scene like you see them like you see like the backs of their heads like it's not it's interesting because you, you mentioned like how Barry Jenkins says a lot of like people looking at the camera, but they're not looking at the camera then, very much the opposite. And I felt like that really was giving, like, it was like giving the characters like their privacy and it was <laughs> letting them like not, yeah, like be under a spotlight. And I feel like that's kind of like the safety that he's like looking for the whole movie. And that's why that betrayal from Kevin was so strong. And, you know, right, he like finds it in Juan and Teresa's home. Um, but I think the fact that like also he moves away from that safety and because he like, I think after like that, that betrayal from Kevin, he just probably thinks that like the only way he'll have safety is if he creates it for himself like and he builds himself up like physically um to create like a physical barrier like don't mess with me at its core the complexities of moonlight shine through chiron's relationships with his mother with his mentors and guardians juan and teresa with his friend kevin and with himself in distinct ways they all help shape who chiron becomes by the end of the film I feel like that's pretty common too. I feel like in coming of age movies, like you right. end up becoming like the father figure or the mother figure um, in your life who, I mean, you know, he didn't hate Juan obviously, but like his mom probably, I mean, even his mom, I don't think he hated her. Like he looked up to them because who else did he really have to look up to? Um, and so, and I also think like, right after he he hits the kid with the chair like he he gets stuck in the system um where he goes to prison and then in prison he meets people who can like you know protect him and then he finds somewhere where he can actually find a way to like protect himself um and so i don't know i feel like that wasn't too foreign to him to begin with so it takes a push, but it just didn't take that big of a push because that's already like what he's surrounded by and what he knows. Because it's like, what else, what else was he gonna do? 
you know, like Ke- Kevin is starting to find a way out, but he's, he hasn't like seen that. So. Um, what did you, what did you make of the dynamic, just the dynamic um, from a relationship standpoint between Chiron and Kevin throughout this movie? I thought it was so special and that they did like, you know, start as friends. And for me, like, I just love that there was kind of this in between with them. Like, obviously it's not like a romance like you would normally see, Um, but like, I don't know, it just felt like so real to me and that it wasn't like, oh, we're going on dates, but like, but there was obviously like something happening between them from the beginning and that it wasn't like the movie never like judged them or or made it feel like it was like something like it's only like wrong to them because other people think it is but like they let it be something sweet in the beginning and just like let them be kids and then later like they let it be sexual but not in a way that is like exploitative exploitative um and so and then in the end there is like that kind of like friendship too and something more like this understanding that like i know something about you and i'm not going to tell anybody but like i want i want to see that part of you and so i love that it was not defined (laughs) and that the whole film they will like do something and then not talk about it (laughs) um because I felt like like I hadn't seen that before um and also like I really liked that they didn't have to define anybody's sexuality but especially like Kevin's um and there was like, yeah, like they never were like, oh, they're together or they're not together. It was just like, they have a relationship to each other and they're exploring what that relationship to each other is, but um, it was never explicit at any point. Um, And so I just appreciated like that they could be friends and then whatever, more or whatever else they wanted to do um but that it wasn't something that was like super set in stone but at the same time it was like the, the most vulnerable that he's ever been with anybody even though they like didn't even talk that much <laughs> you know you mentioned earlier how um especially with coming of age movies and moonlight in particular um and of course with representation um you, you were kind of looking for something uh, that you identify with. And that was a big thing you mentioned earlier, just something you identify with. Um, what about Moonlight uh, in particular do you identify with? Well, first of all, I think when I watched it, I didn't really like, I hadn't really come to terms with like my like queer identity. And so like I was saying, like that relationship with him and Kevin and it being like in flux was something that I was like, <laughs> it's corny to be like love is love, but that's how I felt about it was just that like, you were not thinking of this person and their gender. You were just thinking of, this is a person that I love and I want to be intimate with. Um, And then 
the thing was like that I was so invested in the storyline and so invested in the love story of it, even though there was like nothing on paper for me to identify with him with other than like that we're both queer, but like in his life, I had never experienced those things. <laughs> like I didn't grow up in a neighborhood like that. Um, my family life wasn't like that. I didn't have that school experience, but I still like empathized with him so much and was fully on this journey with him. And that was like, oh, this is why I love movies. Because even though this person has like on paper hardly anything in common with me, um, I'm still like here for this journey. And this movie still makes me feel something and makes me like see that even though, like even through all these tough times that it's still beautiful to see it unfold. So when I asked Lourdes how she would pitch Moonlight to someone, the answer was succinct, yet fitting. I don't know, I feel like I'm always like, you have to watch this movie, it's so good. That's all I have to say, it's like, it's so good, it will make you feel things. That's all I ever say about movies, it'll make you feel things, guaranteed. Sticking within the A24 filmography, let's look at another recent coming of age standout, and one that we've already mentioned earlier in the episode. My name is Grace Fawcett and my favorite movie is Lady Bird. Grace Fawcett, another KU film grad, describes this as a comfort movie and a change of pace for more traditional coming-of-age films that, well, usually center around men. I think that Lady Bird, like, I love it because it hits all the right notes for me, like, especially for that transitional period, like, end of high school, moving on to college. You're, like, fighting so hard to be independent, but you're not independent. And even, like, the smaller scenes, like, when... Uh, she goes shopping with her mom and like when she pops in and out of the dressing room and like the slightest comment that her mom makes can really just set her off and like I remember feeling that way like I remember going prom dress shopping with my mom and I would come out in a dress that I really liked and she'd be like and I was just like why do you hate me so much so I think that like Lady Bird specifically resounds with me I definitely enjoy other coming-of-age stories but I haven't felt like deeply connected to one in the way that I do with Lady Bird. There's a sense of wonder and escapism that first captured Grace and started her love of film. In other words, it's a self-described obsession for her. And it is therapeutic in a lot of ways. And I think that it's magical. I don't know. There's a lot of it that feels very childlike when watching it because you can sort of just let go of what reality is and jump into this world that's not real. Um, even if it's a story that like is pretty close or similar to reality. Before transferring to study film at KU, Grace, a Eudora, Kansas native, first went out of state to the University of Nebraska. That was also where she first saw Lady Bird. At, in Nebraska, they had like a Thursday movie deal for students. So the ticket was $5 and I went with a bunch of my friends. And I remember watching it and like it made me cry at a part and I was just like hit really hard with it. And then I walked out and like, like one or two people that I was with felt the same about it. And then basically everyone else was like, I didn't get it. Like I, I'm what, (laughs) what was that even about? And I remember, I remember that moment. I remember being like, how did you not, how did you not get that? Like, what did, what were you missing there? And I think that that honestly, part of that was part of the reason that I felt like I wanted to transfer and like I wanted to study film because the people that I was with there like didn't get the things that I got and didn't 
I didn't relate to them in the same ways. And I was like, I can't, I can't be around you people. Were those, uh, were those, I just am curious demographic wise, were those mostly guys that were saying that or was it just kind of everybody? No, it was just a group of girls that were with me, but I think the language of the film is told in subtlety to a certain degree and there's no I mean there's a climax but there's not really like an intense climax that you can tell there's no like real goal there's not like an objective and I think that when that like these weren't people who love movies and watch them the way that I do and so I think when the normal structure of a movie is taken away it feels less meaningful or it felt less meaningful to them um whereas it had the opposite effect on me so I was like I don't feel understood <laughs> Lady Bird written and directed by Greta Gerwig follows Christine also known as the self-appointed Lady Bird who is dealing with some extremely relatable issues as she nears the end of high school fracture relationships with her parents her dating life, where she wants to go to college, and of course the acceptance of others. The film resonated with fans and critics alike, notably landing Gerwig a Best Director nomination at the 2018 Academy Awards, becoming just the fifth woman ever nominated for the award. It's also worth mentioning that this isn't an obsessive rewatchable for Grace. In fact, she's only seen it about three or four times. But at the same time, the inherent relatability of the film, showcased through Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf's Oscar-nominated performances, elevates it significantly. I think that there will be a time in my life when I resonate more with the mom than I do with the daughter, and I think that that's part of why this film is so relatable, is because it's not just about Christine, and it's about the mother as well. And I know that there will become a point where I watch it and I'm like, but she's trying so hard, you know, like she's doing her best and she's trying to relate to her daughter. And that's not how I've watched it back yet. And so I think I'm waiting for that transition point to when I watch it and I feel more like the mom in the situation. <laughs> I think Saoirse, Roman's, uh, Saoirse Ronan's performance is amazing, but part of me thinks that Laurie Metcalf like really was the star of the show. Um, because I think that there's just like so much depth to that character that like there's a lot of depth to Lady Bird and her character but this mom is like so intensely worried about so many different things um and she's like working her ass off to try and like make ends meet and her husband loses his job and he's struggling with depression and her older son lives with her like her life is so intensely complicated and difficult and so I think that she's like the character is incredibly interesting to me and also like her, the performance that Lori gives is perfect because I think that there's the perfect amount of like exhaustedness. Like she's just so tired and she's been trying so hard and that's very believable the entire time. Like you see this like instant snapping, like Lady Bird does the slightest thing and Lori's character just like can't handle it. And I think that that's, that's like, what it's like to be a parent who's so stretched thin and like struggling so much to even just pay the bills that it's like you are ungrateful for everything I give you and I literally don't even have time to do laundry and I think that I don't know that performance is just so convincing and it makes you like dislike the mother in a lot of ways which I think it's difficult to do you know it's difficult I think to play a part so well that you make people not like you. 
Yeah, and and she has such she has such an interesting way, which maybe this isn't even the right way to describe it, but she has such a unique way of showing love. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, she has that line early on. You know, the way you work, you're not even worth state tuition. And yeah. you know how uh, when when dad loses a job, you know, some of your wealthy friends uh, could employ your father. And you know, she has this like veneer and like this presentation that she has to uphold and that lady mm-hmm. wants to live her life and you know it's so interesting to me just how like like how how do, you, how do you even quantify like how she shows love like do you feel like she's a loving mother in this film I think upon first watching your instant reaction is no like this woman is so cold and not cruel but definitely not kind Um, but I think the more you watch it and if you like truly get to know the character, I think a lot of it is like, is like love in the many ways that people miscommunicate love. You know, it's like, she's deeply caring about the people in her life and she feels so much responsibility for taking care of them, which is a form of love. But I think she does not know how to communicate it in a way that's like healthy or kind you know she's so worried about everyone that she doesn't take the time to think about like how she's making them feel because I I think it's like a fight or flight thing you know she's in such intense need to make sure that everyone's surviving that she can't even take the time to think about people's emotions um because she's so worried about meeting their basic needs and I think that like there's there's specifically the scene where they're like prom dress shopping and Ladybird's like do you even like me and, and Lori Metcalf is like, well, of course I love you. And she's like, no, that's not what I mean. Like, do you like me? And I, like, I think you can see like in that moment, like she almost knocks on the door and like opens up the door to the dressing room. And it's just like, you can tell the conflict in her head of being like, do I push her and tell her that she needs to try harder? Or do I just give her like the love that I have for her? And I think that that's as a mother, I would like not a mother now, but like, I think that that's a balancing act. You know, you have to figure out how to push your kids, but also make them feel safe with you. And I think that that's a hard thing to do. And she's trying and not doing a very good job at it. That's not to say the titular character of Lady Bird isn't obviously relatable as well. On one hand, as with many coming of age films, she's trying to find and express her passions. Um... You know, I think they even say at one point, uh, one of the nuns says she has a performative streak and she had like, she wants to be in a math club, but she's not actually good at math. And she like, wants yeah. to do all these things. So I was just curious what you thought of kind of those two mm-hmm. sides of her kind of playing this tug of war throughout this film, mm-hmm. trying to find out who she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I felt some of that in high school. Like I played volleyball and I'd played volleyball for a long time, but by the time I got to high school, I wasn't really into it anymore, um, but I kept playing because I was good at it because that's what I mean small midwestern school that's what the people who are popular do um but that's not what I wanted to be doing like at one point I went in and I was auditioning for a role in the theater and I told the director like if you give me the lead I will quit like I'll quit volleyball I'll give this my entire time and I didn't get the lead so I was like okay that's fine I I guess I didn't deserve it and then later on in the like process of practicing and rehearsals the director like confided in me and said like well you were gonna get the lead but you had volleyball and I just remember being like 
oh, what have I done? <laughs> like, I, I understood why the director did that and like why the director didn't believe that a 17 year old would actually quit for something else. But I just remember feeling like I've spent so much of high school doing what other people wanted me to do. And I actually don't like that. And it could have been so different if I did other things. Um, and so I just feel like, I, like I understand the dynamic of being like, what am I actually interested in? Like, what am I doing for me? And what am I not doing for me? And it's such a confusing thing to figure out. And like, it's hard when you're that age to figure out like if you're doing something for attention or if you're doing something because you genuinely like it. Cause you don't really understand. You don't really know. There's also the dreaded college application process where almost inevitably many of us want to go as far away as possible. Yeah, I think I, I think I fully understand that. I mean, I went out of state my freshman year for school trying to get away from my hometown and ended up like in a place that was much more rural than I thought it was going to be. Um, and so I, I think I very much like empathize with the like need to experience something other than you're experiencing. Like I remember my last year living with my parents, like I was just so ready to leave, so ready to be done. And any sort of like affection anyone would have for the town that I lived in, it was just like, why? Why do you even like it here? Like this place just sucks. And then I think with more time as you leave, you appreciate where you came from. It doesn't mean that you want to go back necessarily, but it does mean that you see the value that it has. And I think that I think that it's it's an experience that a lot of people can relate to. It's just this like desperate clawing and like need to escape from where you are. Yeah, I always thought it was funny um, how she calls Sacramento the Midwest of California. But I'm like, <laughs> you've never, never even been to the Midwest. I, I felt like that was a shot. <laughs> no, it definitely, It. I mean, it, I think that that's funny because like, if you think about where Sacramento is, it's like, yeah, I guess you're like an hour and a half from San Francisco, but like, you're in California paying California taxes for what reason? No, that, that's, that's totally fair. I thought of, <laughs> I thought of that, that way. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's still got its pluses, but. Now let's jump back to those aforementioned relationships shown throughout this movie. Oh, totally. And I want to bring in, um, you know, the character here, um, you know, Beanie Feldstein's, um, Ju Beanie Feldstein's Julie. And, you know, she obviously, mm -hmm. uh, you know, she has another film that came out a couple years later and Booksmart that kind of, yeah with some similar themes there but um you know I want to talk about that friendship a little bit because you know I, I think in a lot of respects Lady Bird is for the majority of this film not a great friend to Julie um at all you know she goes that whole phase of like Jenna Walton and like how she wants to have this again the whole presentation thing about how mm -hmm. she lives in that big <clears throat> big house in the fab 40s neighborhood or whatever yeah um I, I mean what did you think of that relation that friendship there and how you know, at the end of the day, she had to realize that Julie, Julie was her day one and she should have yeah. stayed by her side. Yeah. I think that that is like such a funny, like high school thing. I mean, I think people did have good friends in high school, but for like my experience is just like, you just bounce around. Like you got different friends. You just, I don't know. You're just around different people. And I think that like, it's a hard lesson to learn when you realize that the person you thought you were friends with wasn't really your friend and then you actually did something to the person who was really your friend that is going to ruin your friendship 
And I think that that's just like part of figuring how friendship works out. And I also think that like, yeah, Ladybird's a really bad friend in this movie. Like she's so mean. She's very cruel and just like cold. And I think that it's funny just like watching a character like mess up different parts of their lives so much. And of course, we as a viewer were like, you're making a mistake. But like, I mean, we do that shit all the time where you're like friends with someone you really shouldn't be friends with and you're leaving the people who truly care about you behind. So I think it's just funny, like watching that and knowing like, oh, oh, high school. I think perspective and hindsight totally play in our favor there. Yeah. And Uh, I think that that's what's so fun about this movie is that you can tell that Greta is just like diving into like this was high school. This was like how you try and figure out how to interact with people. And like, this is the first time you have, you don't have to like really tell your parents everything or like, let, like, let them drive you. Like it's, there's more freedom for you to choose who you're friends with. And I think that that also comes with people making really poor decisions. Yeah. And let's get into some more poor decisions with her dating life. (laughs) Um, So there are obviously two boys that she is uh, romantically involved with in this film. Mm-hmm. And the first is Lucas Hedges' uh, Danny. And, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> I feel like they're two, like, different versions of, like, in high school, what you think love is. Mm-hmm. The first one is, like, this star-crossed lovers, like, literally pick a star for us. They tell each other they love them. And then, of course, find out that Danny's actually gay, you know, yeah. taken out with the other theater kid in the bathroom. I mean, what did you think? of that relationship and how it it just went zero to 100 real quick (laughs) yeah I think that that's I mean it's quintessential for high school but I think one thing I love about this movie is that it's not it's not focusing on the romantic relationships because I think in high school like I mean you date people but it's not really that like significant in memory and I feel like she like Greta Gerwig does a really good job of like writing it in a way that like there is that piece of it but it's not the most important piece of it and one thing I really love about this movie is that it doesn't show like the heartbreak as like intensely as some other teen movies do like Saoirse Ronan is just like sad for a little bit and then she just gets over it and I think that that's like what high school is like you fall in love with someone and then like a month later they break your heart and then you're sad for three days and then it's over you know like it's not this whole like I'm taking months to get over that it's just like oh now I'm done and I moved on to someone else and I think that I love that because I I feel like too much of teen drama is like centered on the relationships like the romantic relationships in their life and that's not what's really formative at least from my experience like that's not the most important thing I learned or piece of my adolescence you know like it was the other relationships that I had and everything else was just sort of like a backdrop like I it wasn't the biggest thing that I learned and it was always like sad for a hot second no I'm good so oh no that I I completely get that um and you know the other one that we have to talk about is with uh oh my god who you know, I just love his dynamic, whether it's this or Little Women with Saoirse Ronan. God, um, yeah. For sure. But, um, you know, he, he is this, like, distant, you know, cool kid. Of course, I, I feel like he's the most aptly named character of Kyle in this whole film. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, Kyle, Kyle totally fits him. And, you know, that scene where she loses her virginity is, yeah. is like, you know, 
kind of heartbreaking in a certain respect because mm-hmm. she wanted it to be so special, but then mm-hmm. it wasn't. And yeah, so, you know, what, what did you think of that, that secondary relationship where she, you know, kind of a wake up call for her in some respects? Oh my God. Okay. So first of all, this, I feel like I, Timothy Chalamet in this movie, I'm like, that is really you. Like, I just feel like this is actually truly who he is. And I know that's maybe not true, but it just like, it's too perfect that I just like, there's no way this is not who you are in real life. <laughs> like you're kind of just a tool. Um, but I feel like her relationship with him, it's just like, you're so delusional. Like you just, he's giving you all the signs that he's just like not a good dude and not really interested in you. And yet you're like, it's perfect. Like <laughs> he loves me. <laughs> And I, I just, oh God, and he's such a shitty person too. He's like, I don't like money. And of course he's like going to a private college and high school and like his dad's got so much money. And like, we all knew those kids who were just like, you know, it doesn't really matter. And I'm like, for you maybe. Uh, yeah, but their love story is just like hard to watch in a lot of ways. Like it just feels like a train wreck. You know that it's, something that she desperately wants and the whole time you as a viewer know like you're not doing the right thing here like this is actually a mistake and it's this moment like because I mean they break up like basically right after they sleep together for the first time and I think that that's just like such cruel irony but it's also like I love the way this movie told like her losing her virginity because it's like you hide that up so much in your head and then it's just like what that was it and like the other part like it's just oh god it's so well told and I think that it's I love that they don't harp on it for too long and I love that she's afterwards like it doesn't even really seem that like she's sad about him it's more so just like oh the moment that I thought that I was going to have in my head is now gone and I think that that's part of like growing up and like learning the things you do about romantic relationships where it's like oh like the things that I told myself it would be in my head not it and now I have to like figure out what it really is and I I really appreciated that about this movie oh, totally and you know this is kind of jumping back to an earlier point I guess but you know there's a moment um it's kind of a small moment but there's a moment where basically uh Lady Bird and Julie are talking outside of outside of class and you know Julie has to run away because she has to pass her history exam or something. And Lady Bird says, no, I don't want to be alone. And that line really stuck out to me because, you know, Lady Bird, you know, Danny, Julie, her dad is dealing with depression. You know, Father Levayich, Stephen Henderson's character, you know, is visiting, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Lady Bird's mom. And there's this, this feeling of a lot of people in this movie that are just, really going through it and really feeling alone and depressed and you know just that that feeling of wanting to whether it's acceptance or love or what have you um and you know there's a moment later in the film where julie says you know some people aren't built happy you know Mm -hmm. and so i guess i just wanted to ask you how do you feel like this film dealt with some of those ideas of acceptance and love and you know depression for lack of a better term Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think nothing is perfect. Like, no, it, there's no, especially when you're involving so many different layers of things, that there's no real way to tell all of it perfectly. But I do think 
I appreciate the way it's told because these details could have been left out and the movie still would be good. But I think that that it's part of the telling of real life is this like, there's so many different puzzle pieces and so many people are dealing with different things. And like um, Julie's character's mom is dating this one guy and she's been dating a lot of dudes and this one might stick around or maybe he won't. Um, and the way that they deal with like Lady Bird's dad's depression. I think that it's complicated. And I, as uh, like, I think that there's, maybe areas that the film could do better but I also think that like it's doing its best to portray the complexity of the relationships that you have when you're in high school and like the relationships that your parents have like I don't remember his name but the like the priest or like the director of the uh, theater he ends up going to the hospital and talking to Lady River's mom about like his depression and the way he feels all the time. And I think that I really love that part of this movie because it it adds complexities and it adds like different dynamics that paint the bigger picture. And it's not just about, it's not just about Lady Bird. I, well, like she's the main character, but there's so many other characters involved here and the way that they touch each other's lives is, very intimate in weird ways um and it's all interwoven like when you're in a small town like everything is connected in a way that you can't escape and I think that that like this does a good job of explaining that and showing how that feels is like everyone is connected in one way or another the dad and the son will be trying for the same job and it's it shows a lot of character when like it's written like this in this way that like I think it just feels like a real slice of life situation. With all that in mind, Grace wanted to specifically mention that it's important to come to Ladybird with an open mind on your first watch. Like if I will fully admit, like if you are a dude, you're probably not going to get it as much. But I think that there's still value there because um, I think that there's value in watching stories that are not necessarily your own. Um, but I think it's a a really well-told story of the dynamic between mothers and daughters. And I think that like the father-son dynamic is one that you know you see somewhat often, um, but I think mother-daughter relationships are particularly interesting to me. Um, and I think that this does a really good job of showing that. Um, so if you're down for like a slice of life mother-daughter relationship story this is this is definitely it for you um and it's just beautifully told and it's simple which i think i is, is really what makes it so special to me We've looked at some excellent coming-of-age films so far, particularly from that lauded A24 lens. So, let's next go back a few decades to the work of a master of the genre, John Hughes. My name is Logan Fricks. My favorite movie is The Breakfast Club. Logan Fricks, a recent graduate at the University of Kansas, thinks it's a bit of a basic choice, which, even if it is to the masses, here on the Formative Films Project, we preach the message of liking what you like. 
I've seen I've seen both the Breakfast Club and Ferris Bueller, and honestly, they're super like cliche, but both of them are like two of my favorite movies I've ever watched. Just because like I really enjoy the 1980s teen drama. I don't know why it's just so funny to me, and I just really enjoy like seeing like what life was like back then, and then even comparing like high school back then, and then what like I went through and stuff like that. So. I think that the reason I really enjoyed The Breakfast Club, because the first time I ever watched it, I was in high school, same with Ferris Bueller. Um, the first time I ever watched it, I was in high school. So it was like the things that they were doing, I could kind of relate to. And just the teen drama and just like, and it wasn't like overdone either. It's like, don't get me wrong, like people aren't going to be put into this kind of a situation. You know what I mean? Like the Ferris Bueller, like that's never actually going to happen in real life. But it was still like, they weren't like overdoing anything. It wasn't like over dramatic. It wasn't anything like that. And on top of that, it wasn't exactly what was happening in high school. Like they weren't actually in high school, but like they're still like their attitude, their emotions, they still have high school related issues. So a lot of that I just really enjoyed. And I guess I still really do enjoy it. One of the reasons we love movies is the communal aspect whether that be in a packed theater or over at a friend's house on the weekend. Obviously, the pandemic has significantly hampered that, but that sense of community gathered around movies is a draw for Logan. It's just kind of like a form of entertainment to kind of pass time by. I'm not like a huge um, movie person, not like super into them. I watch a lot of TV shows, so I'm probably way more into like TV than I am movies. But I would say like movies are just kind of like a way to I don't know I watch a lot of movies like at nighttime is usually like when you'll find me so if it's like if I'm like with people or like we're like hanging out with people I kind of use like movies as like a way to have like a social I don't know like a, I, I watch movies more in like a social setting I guess like with other people and like then we'd like we'll talk about it or something like that and that usually I mean typically occurs at like nighttime but I'm not like a big movie goer or something like that. 1985's The Breakfast Club, written and directed by John Hughes, is on its face pretty low concept. We follow the story of five high schoolers from vastly different social backgrounds stuck in Saturday detention. Andy, Brian, Claire, Allison, and of course, Bender. Hijinks ensue, and the group finds out they actually have far more in common than they ever could have imagined. It's worth mentioning that in recent years, Logan says he shifted to another film as his quote-unquote favorite, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, a film we'll touch on in a later episode, partly due to ease of access. Still, though, with The Breakfast Club... It was always just a movie that I always loved to fall back onto. Um, if there was something like I didn't know what to watch at the time, it was always The Breakfast Club was the first one to pop up. I actually, um, for Halloween, my sophomore year, I dressed up as Bender, the bad, the bad kid from the movie. Um, that was my costume. And I don't know, it was just like a movie that for a really long time, I, I really enjoyed and really loved to watch. And so it was a very easy, like, once you said Pulp Fiction was taken, I mean, it was an immediate, like, I already know what it was, because for a very long time, that was my favorite movie to watch. What makes this film so rewatchable for you? Um, definitely, like I said, I'm just super into like the teenage drama, but it's, I'm super into like movies that deal with like class issues 
so something like um, Parasite, where it like compares like the lower class to the upper class, or a movie like I actually just watched this movie last night to be honest, but the platform where it really shows like class issues between each level. I'm very into like movies that show like social structure and the breakfast club does a really good job of doing that when it comes to the social clubs because you have kids from different clubs and then how these people are all different but then like bringing them together in like a positive way like most movies that kind of like attack that idea do it in a negative way and show like the issues that that exist there and the breakfast club does a really good job of like making it having a positive outlook on it and showing like despite being you know from different areas different social uh, structures like you can still like you're still going to have things in common with other people and I think that that's like a really big thing because I really enjoy like the idea of social structures and just movies that like bring attention to that and the breakfast club is one of the movies that like there's the teen drama but then it does this social structure thing in a very positive way. And I really enjoy like that type of thing. Um, and there's a quote by David Bowie that opens this movie. I wanted to read it for you. Uh, and these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Um, how do you feel like this movie kind of portrays that divide, if you will, of just the adults don't understand how, how we're basically coming of age during this period? Well, I think that like it really... So um, I can't remember the jock's name. They don't really say the names a lot, so I always forget their names, but the Andy. jock's name, Andy. Mm. Okay, so his his dad, like, he's always, he's super close with his dad. And, like, throughout the movie, he kind of comes to this realization that, like, what his dad wants isn't exactly, like, what he wants. And I, so th I think that that idea is most prevalent within him because it goes to show, like, one something that, like, like the idea that like you can be who you want to be and a lot of parents try to force something upon their child I think that he really goes through like this development of I don't exactly want to be what my dad wants me to be so I think the idea is most prevalent through him and um I think just like I'm trying to think like the the, the principal I mean he's more like just an antagonist that kind of pops up here and there but it was just like things that they're they're doing or like the essay at the very end um, when they write the essay it's like this is what you expect us to be but and that's exactly what we are but like we're not exactly what you think we are and so I think that the idea or the movie shows a, it does a really good job of showing like these people know who they are and what they want to be and the things that they want to do it's just a matter of like allowing us to do that and understanding us because like like Bender like nobody understands him but like he doesn't want to be the bad kid who ends up in prison for the rest of his life you know he wants to be something more than that and the movie does a really good job of showing like these kids have an idea of who they want to be and what they want to do in their lives and just like the adults in the situation need to allow them to do that. Uh, and yeah the essay you referenced there they kind of they kind of do a voiceover of it at the beginning and then of course bring it all together at the end you know where they classify them as a brain an athlete a basket case a princess and a criminal um and, and these characters i feel like the character work is one of the strong suits of um john hughes and his scripts um of course i mean the central five you have emilio estevez the molly ringwald is claire ali sheedy is allison judd nelson bender 
Anthony Michael Hall as Brian, then of course Paul Ble Paul Gleason as Vernon, and then John Kapalos as Carl the janitor. Just an incredible like five minutes of screen time. Um, what characters um, from this movie stand out to you? Um, definitely Bender, and then definitely um, Andy. The, the that's his name, right? The nerdy kid. Uh, that's yeah. Brian. Brian, 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 Brian. Okay, I love Brian and I love Bender. Obviously, I love Bender. I mean, that was Halloween costume, but. Brian, I felt like was the kid that I could relate to the most in high school because I was kind of like the nerdy, geeky kid who wasn't really like fit in with the popular kids, but like kind of wanted to. I mean, I wasn't, I wouldn't say like I was as smart as Brian or like in all of those social clubs because I wasn't, but just out of the, out of the characters that were there, he was the one I could relate to the most. And like, those were the kids that I tended to hang around a lot. So him a lot. And then Bender, I really enjoy because he's supposed to be like this antagonist who's actually a protagonist and he like brings a lot of conflict, but like without him, the movie just wouldn't, it wouldn't be like funny, it wouldn't be watchable. I mean, you wouldn't, like you wouldn't even want to watch the movie without him. Like he plays such an important role of being this bad guy who eventually turns into like the most important character, I feel like. So definitely him, but then Brian is just like really funny. He just like has his moments of being funny. And then he also has like a huge uh, coming to age when they're all um, <laughs> when they're all smoking and just like that, he finally feels like he's fitting in and all that. So I really enjoy uh, him as a character. Like he's just like has his moments of being the funniest guy on the, on the screen. Yeah, and you mentioned that uh, that fitting in element, and and I feel like that's kind of a big part of this movie, just belonging to social groups. You know, they talk, they have that long discussion about um, which clubs they belong into, and how the clubs that Brian might be involved in aren't actual clubs because they're not social clubs. And I think Andy at one point tells Bender, "If you disappear forever, it wouldn't make any difference. You may as well not even exist at this school," which of course comes up later. Um, and but at the same time, there's still, still this sense of belonging, right? I mean, even after uh, Bender goes goes and closes the door, they still cover for him, even though they don't like each other. You know, there, there's still that sense of belonging. How do you feel like this movie kind of portrays that idea that I feel like we all kind of go through in high school in that period of just wanting to kind of be in a group and be accepted? Um, I think it shows like it does a really good job of like showing the perspective of each person of in different social clubs because like you said you have the kids who they think they're social clubs but other people don't perceive that as a social club but like that is that is their social club even if it's just they're doing physics or they're doing some form of science or math or whatever it is they still feel like that is like the group that they belong to those are their friends that's how they socialize with people so it shows their perspective but then it shows like the the popular kids perspective of like I'm at the top, but like there's still things that I'm going through and I wish like, like um, I'm trying to, basically like the, like the jock guy, like Andy, um, he, he is like at the top of the top of high school, you know, like that's the guy that people want to be, but then he has issues like with his family at home, like the things that he wants to do, he doesn't actually want to be like this guy, the top of the high school food chain. So it kind of, it does a really good job of showing like each person's perspectives and like the positives, but then also really shows like the things that they're going through and the negative downside to whatever social club that they're in. And I think it does, shows a really good job of showing both sides of like each level to it. Like 
you see both you see perspective from every every group uh and, and another aspect of high school at least in late high school is i mean that question of what are you going to do next where are you going to college what is your drive what are your plans for the future and and i feel like that's also kind of uh, one of the viewpoints of this movie is all of them looking towards the future. And I, I know there's plenty of lines about Bender ending up in prison or Andy doesn't want to give up his full ride. So he has to sit out this detention and stuff like that. How do you feel like that this movie kind of looks at, not only looks at where these kids are at the present, but also kind of with eyes toward the future? I think it, it's like something that's very relatable because, I mean, it's something that every kid goes through in high school of like, what am I going to do in the future? Am I going to go to college? Am I not going to call go to college? If you do, like, where am I going to end up? And if you don't, what am I going to do? And it shows like both sides to that because you have the kids who aren't going to go to college. And it's like, what am, what am I going to do? Like, where am I going to be? And Bender really doesn't want to go to prison. It doesn't want to be like this bad kid. So it's like, what can he do now to, prevent that from happening and kind of like actually be the person that he wants to be but then it shows the other side of sure I'm the smartest kid in the room and like I'm going to be exactly where I want to be in in uh, college and like I'm going to have educational success in college because like um, Brian is so smart but he still has like um, cause he ends up like failing a class or something like that, or is like very close to doing it. So his own issues with that and things that are holding him, him back. So I think the movie does a really good job of making college or making like after high school, like you, you, like when you're watching that movie, you feel like you're in that situation. Like you completely understand what they're going through and the emotions that they're having and the conflicts that they're having because it just makes it so relatable. And I think that that's why, that's something why I really enjoyed the movie so much because the emotions that they feel, it's exactly what you feel, you know? So the movie does a really, really good job of that. And, and part of the, I feel like a large part of those emotions are our insecurities too, which I think even people our age past high school, of course, um, almost yeah. to get out of college, feel that a lot too. And, and I feel like a lot of this movie also is them putting up a front, right? You know, there, there are plenty of comments about basically uh, shaming people for being still, still being virgins. You know, there, there are people, uh, of course, Bender and Andy almost get into a fight or actually they do get into a short wrestling match at one point, you know, two hits, me hitting you, you hitting the floor. Uh, I mean, Vernon's all just like, oh, everything's polluted. These kids are all trouble, whatever. And I feel like a lot of these people are just, they're all putting up a front of what they want people to perceive, but that's not how they actually feel. Um, how, do you, how do you feel that this movie kind of gets at those insecurities of these high school kids? I mean, throughout the movie, it like progresses and like that front eventually like fades away because like you said, like the prissy girl who she's just here to go through the tension and like she like at the very start, she's like, I understand I'm supposed to be in detention, but I'm not supposed to be here. Like, I'm not supposed to be around these people. And like, eventually she has like a thing for Bender and like, she really like enjoys his presence. And, and then the jock dude likes the other girl who's super quiet and super, but she doesn't want to be like this very like introverted girl. Like she wants to, she really, she really likes Andy. So like, as the movie goes on, you just learn like all these different things about like Brian, the smartest kid in the room, 
even like you find out he's actually like failing a class and his parents are very upset with him but at the beginning of the movie he's supposed to be what every parent like I think um he's called every parent's like wet dream or something like that so the movie does a really really good job of tackling like what people like the front you were talking about what people this mask that they're putting on and then taking the mask off and so as it progresses you you just see like the mask slowly coming off and eventually you find out like what every person is going through and what every person like what their emotions are and where they are in life and it's just like as soon as they get there everyone will, like you were saying how everybody is putting on like the mask that they want to be what people they want people to see and then by the end of it i mean it they're a completely different person and it's like that change only happens in a matter of like eight hours i think nine hours so for it to happen that quickly is the movie does a really good job of doing that right and and i feel like that kind of culminates um in that in one, one of the later scenes when they're all kind of uh sharing sharing their airing their dirty laundry essentially you know i mean there's that scene of uh, Allison literally dumping out her purse and the contents of her purse as they kind of get into not only how they got into detention, but also just how they got to this point in life. You know, I feel like the common ground there is um, their parents, you know, and, and how they don't have home lives that are, well, quite, quite frankly, just positive, not positive home lives. Um, and that's kind of their common ground. What do you think of that kind of come together scene and also just that idea of even though these five people come from very different walks of life, they all kind of are able to find uh, that common ground there. Um, I think the biggest thing is despite, like, like you were talking about with the parents thing, I think that the biggest thing is some of these people do have like, what from the outside looks like a really good home life. Like they're set up for success. They have financial like stability, stuff like that. So I think that it does a good job of showing like these people have a very good home life and this is what they're, they're doing everything that their parents want them to do and they have the tools to do that. But then over here, it compares it to the people who don't have that and not a great home life and don't have the financial stability that these people do. So it does a good job of comparing that. But it also goes to, it also shows how like in every situation and every like different standard or every different, um, I don't know, like each of their families, they each have like their own issues. Like they don't feel connected with their parents and they all five like come together and realize like, hey, like we all have our own issues. Like, even if it looks like to you, I don't, like I still do. Like you might think that my life is perfect because my, I'm Brian, how he's every parent's wet dream and yet he doesn't feel that way. Like he doesn't feel like he's what he, his parents expect him to be. So I think that all five of them are coming together and realizing that like they all have their issues in their home life. I think that's really what like the common ground is, is discovering that like on the outside, it seems this way, but like when you actually get to know the person and you actually like understand their issues, it's not like that at all. And um, I think that that's where they really find like their, I think that that's how they make come so close to each other because they realize like each of them don't have the perfect life. Um, I feel like a lot of this, uh, a lot of these movies, you know, in the mid eighties, especially with just, just a coming of age um, and just coming of age movies of any decade or whenever it came out, 
is um, a lot of that idea of finding yourself and that I, that identity. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of, or these kids kind of find themselves throughout the course of this movie. Um, how, how do you, how do you feel like this movie kind of portrayed, I, mean, I know we've talked about it a little bit, but how, how do you feel like this movie kind of portrayed just that idea of, you know, finding yourself and just kind of realizing who you are, whether it is by your environment or just by your personal choices? I think it does it by like comparing yourself to what these other people are going through. Like you see like what the jock is going through when you're the nerdy kid and then realizing like, here's like how the jock actually feels about their situation. And it kind of makes you think about like, well, what am I going through? Cause you, we all know our own issues and we all know like the things that we're going through and the things that we want to change in our environment, but we don't get to see other people's perspectives of that. So I think that being able for like those kids being able to compare what they're going through to what somebody else is going through and realizing like, oh, you know, not everybody is perfect or um, even even comparing yourself from when you're at the top and comparing yourself to people low, like lower than you, it still makes you like come to like a realization of this isn't what I want to be and this isn't what I want to do. I don't want to like treat these people like they're any lesser than me. And when you're at the bottom looking up, you're like, I want to be there. But then like when you come to the realization that even they they aren't perfect, it makes it makes like everything easier for you. Like it may it like takes like this weight and there's still gonna be weight on your shoulders, but like it just eases it a little bit because you kind of come to the realization that not everybody's perfect. And then on the flip side, like I said, when you're looking down from when you're at the top looking down you know, you're like, I don't want to feel like these people are less than me. Like, I want these people to be like, feel exactly how I do. So I think it's just being able to compare like where you are to where other people are. And that's really like what makes these people want to change and come to like that realization of this environment. Like I can change the things happening around me and here's what I actually want. And so I think it's just like, that's the biggest thing is being able to compare where you are to where other people are. In several respects, The Breakfast Club is very 1985 and very much a product of its time. At the same time... I would just be like, you know, if you really enjoy, like, corny movies, this is, like, the best one to watch. Like, this is number one on that list. Like, when you think of 1980s movies, like, The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller, like, this is that, like, this is that movie when you think of cringy 1980s movies. Like, this is the top of the list, so... That's why it's a must-watch. Speaking of which, let's go to 1986 for the fifth and final selection for this episode. My name is Emily Durkin, and my favorite movie is Ferris Bueller's Day Off. At first, Emily Durkin had to double-check to make sure this was still her favorite movie. I love this movie. I've loved it since I was a kid. I remember the first time I saw it was at my grandparents' house on a little tiny TV on the VHS, which I have that VHS tape now. My grandpa gave it to me. Um, My cat is named Ferris. Like... I love this movie. Um, and then I think that and I was like, am I too old to still like, is this still like the movie for me? And then I watched it last night and when he sits up in bed and he's like, they bought it. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is still my favorite movie. Like, <laughs> Emily, a filmmaker herself, says she watches Ferris Bueller's Day Off at least once a year since she was about 14 years old, which considering she's 26 now is a considerable amount. Is there anything else you kind of picked up on this latest rewatch that maybe you hadn't you either maybe forgot about or maybe hadn't uh, picked up before? Um, mm, 
I mean, this time I know like what happened to Jeffrey Jones as an actor. So that was like a little bit disappointing. Oh, actually, the coolest thing about watching it this time is since last time I watched it, I met Charlie Sheen. And I got to ask him about working with John Hughes. Um, at the college I work at in Los Angeles, very complicated story. Basically, he came to the college like undercover to be in this Wayne's World skit that the students got to make the set for and direct. Like it was very cool. But I got to walk him out to the front door because I'm the assistant to the dean. And he, his friend is like the person who brought Charlie Sheen. Um, and I asked him like, um, John Hughes is my favorite director. Can you please tell me what it's like to work with him? Which is a very scary question because he could have been an asshole. I don't know. Um, and I've been in love with this man in a respectful way my whole life. So like, I was nervous to ask him, but what he told me is that um, he was, he was like very, he spoke very highly of John Hughes. And he said that um, he got the part because he was friends with Jennifer Gray and um, he overslept and he was late to set. And so when he arrived, Jennifer was like, dude, I stuck my neck out for you. Like, come on, what are you doing? You're late. And he like rushed in he was like, I'm so sorry. Uh, and John Hughes was like, it's okay. We'll just get started now that you're here. Like he was super chill about it. And he said that the part where he's like cracking his knuckles, that he just did that. And he, John Hughes saw him do it and just leaned to the DP and was like, hey, can we get a close up of that? Like, it just sounds like he was super kind and super intuitive. And he just watched the people that, he, the actors that he surrounded himself with. And he picked up on, like, that's so cool to me that he just picked up on his, his uh, Charlie Sheen's natural tick. And he, that is such an iconic shot in the movie when he cracks his knuckles. So watching it this time, it was really cool to to know that and just to know that like, it was kind of fun to know that Jennifer Grey and Charlie Sheen were friends in that scene and how fun that would have been to act together. Um, but just to know that like, John Hughes was like a good man. And yeah, that just, after he told me that I like went back up to my desk and I started crying on the walk because I was so almost relieved to know that like this person who I've regarded as my hero is is a good person. Um, so that definitely changed watching the movie this time. It definitely made it a new layer of, of respect for the movie. That's, that's an awesome story. Um, what, what's the name of the college you worked at? Uh, I work at the Los Angeles Film School. Okay. Gotcha. It's just a little, um, just a little college in Hollywood. Sure. You know, you mentioned a little bit ago that John Hughes is your favorite director. Um, and you know, he, I was actually listening to a podcast uh the other day about him and about Ferris Bueller's Day Off and you know somebody on there mentioned that he is one of the directors that maybe arguably more people than maybe any other director over the last like 40 50 years relate to just especially because of his uh, who you know his coming of age stories and, his, and you know Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 16 Candles kind of that that mode I mean Home Alone all that stuff um what about his style kind of sticks out to you um, as, you know, one of your favorite directors and just how he, you know, he's able to tap into something that's so, uh, I guess, relatable, even, even for like us who weren't necessarily alive. Yeah, which is fascinating, right? Yeah. Like, it's fascinating that, that, yeah, we could be, I could graduate high school in 2013 and still when I'm watching The Breakfast Club, I feel like I belong in that room. Um, 
I don't quite know how he does it. Um, I think it's quite amazing that he, as an adult, was able to tap into what it felt like to be a teenager. Um, and it's something that I don't even know if like I could do after, even after studying him and, and him being my favorite writer and director, that's a really difficult thing to do. I also want to be sure to mention that coming of age is Emily's favorite genre of movies. In the non-John Hughes division, me and Earl and the Dying Girl is a favorite of hers. I'm not, I think the reason I love coming of age movies is because, I mean, we all love a character arc, right? We all love the character growth. That's really important in a film, but when you're young, it just hits you differently. Um, so like Earl watching his best friend die is like, man, how would I handle that? Like, I didn't have to go through that when I was 16. Um, and it's just, it's sort of like empowering in, in a very realistic way. Whereas you can watch something like, you know, a fantasy movie like Star Wars or like a superhero movie. And like, obviously they're doing much more wild things, but that probably won't happen to me. Um, of course. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, coming of age movies is just something about this, like, it's like you're learning how to grow up in all these different ways. And then also you get to learn in your own, what happened in your own life whatever seminal event. Um, and I, I also think it's nice to believe that like there's one big event that's gonna happen in your teenage years that's gonna change your life. And that's not really true, of course. We all know like a lot of times there's a lot of things that happen and sometimes they happen all at once and sometimes they happen over years. But it's nice to believe that there's just one item you have to tackle, especially when you are 16 and you're watching these movies and you just like, it's like you're prepping, which is something that I, relates back to my particular anxieties that I always like to be prepared for just everything that could possibly happen. Um, so I don't know if that's relatable to other people, um, but I think that's why I was very drawn to coming of age movies when I was a teenager. Emily's also found that her filmmaking background has affected, for better or worse, how she enjoys and watches movies. I generally use movies to make myself feel better. Um, I, as a teenager, was very interested in John Hughes. He's my favorite director. Um, and his movies always made me feel very nostalgic, even though I was the age of the Brat Pack, right? But it just made me feel some kind of way, you know? So that's when I decided, like, I, I have to make movies. I have to, I want other people to understand what I'm feeling right now. Um, now I feel like after you learn how to make movies, I feel like it can very much ruin movies. Um, there are times when my boyfriend will ask me to watch a movie and I'm just like, I don't have the energy to watch that kind of movie because I, sometimes you can't relax. I'm sure you relate to this. Like there are certain types of movies that just, they cause anxiety because I'm just thinking about how would I shoot this? How hard was this to make? Um, but there are movies that, but that's exciting too. I don't want to say that that's like movies are ruined forever. That's also a very exciting way to watch movies. Um, but generally speaking, I I use movies to like put myself in a better mood. They they are like one of the most amazing things on the planet, and they're just like one of the coolest forms of art to me. Especially Ferris Bueller's Day Off. This movie can change my mood, and it just like puts me in a different world. Like. I literally disconnect from where I am when I'm watching it. And it just makes me so happy to watch it. Even though I know every line by now, I know I know all the mistakes, right? 
just something it just it just makes me feel really good from 1986 Ferris Bueller's Day Off, written and directed by John Hughes, follows the titular Ferris Bueller, played by Matthew Broderick, as he convinces his parents he's sick enough to miss school, infamously for the ninth time this semester. He takes full advantage, driving a Ferrari, singing in a parade, catching a ball game at Wrigley Field, and exploring downtown Chicago with his girlfriend Sloan and his best friend Cameron. It's all a fever dream, and very mid-80s to boot. Yeah, I don't know that anybody else could have played Ferris Bueller, and and I know that Anthony Michael Hall has said, like, if me and John Hughes didn't have a falling out, this is my role. I don't think that would have worked out very well. Because, I mean, watching it this time, my dad, he was like, wow, Ferris is kind of an asshole. And I'm like, yeah, but no, because, like, Matthew Broderick plays it so charming and smooth. And I know that um, John Hughes had other scenes written in the movie. He's very notorious for shooting way more than those in the movie, which is why he shoots um single day stories that like there's a scene of Ferris stealing money from his parents which I, they cut out because it was too swarmy um yeah he walks the line of being someone that you can't stand and you have to be around and he does it so well and I think they almost cast John Cusack too which seems like it would have been more like high fidelity like sort of a mopey high fidelity seems like grown-up mopey Ferris to me um so I, I think that Matthew Broderick is the only person that could balance this role and, and have people still love him, even though he is forcing his friend to steal his dad's car. And like, what a jerk, you know? <laughs> but, but like, but also like, that's what he needed. That's what Cameron needed. Um, yeah, I, I truly believe that nobody else could have played this role. Uh, he, he nailed it. Totally. I totally agree with you. And, you know, I think part of that is he has this like magnetic uh, quality to him. And part of that comes from those, you know, those fourth wall breaks and those, yes. you know, the beginning, how he, he lists out like how to fake out your parents with the clammy hands and all that. Yes. I, I mean, what did you think of that choice, you know, to, to have him directly address camera and to like, in a way that kind of helped foster this like direct relationship with the audience in a certain sense? Yeah, yes. Um, I think when I first saw it when I was a kid, I, I, I predict that it didn't mean much to me, um, probably because of how often people have done that now. Um, obviously, I, when I was a little kid, I didn't understand this is like the iconic version of breaking the fourth wall in movies, right? Um, but as you know, as a filmmaker watching it, it's so smart. And it's one of those things that sometimes you see a movie and you're like, I wish I thought of that first. And it's something that I'm just like, wow, I wish I could have been there to do it first because now it's sort of like, oh, you're just copying Ferris Bueller, which for me is fine, but I know that, you know, people might roll their eyes at that. Um, yeah, and, and I, I remember when I when I was young and I would watch the movie and the words on the screen, I was just like, what a cool creative choice. Like, I just, the movie is so interesting because a lot of, even other John Hughes movies, they're, they're shot in a pretty basic movie way so to watch a movie that is putting graphics on the screen in the middle of the movie and he's even when he just like does those little looks to the camera while he's like taking the car he looks to the camera he looks back at camera and it's just like it adds this it makes it's part of the thing that makes him less of a jerk is is he's looking at you like I have to do this and you sort of understand where he's coming from in a more intimate way for sure. And, you know, I want to talk about, so there, 
So, um, I mean, there, there are kind of, I guess, like two villains in this, you know, Rooney, Rooney being kind of the main guy. And then also there's this sibling rivalry. And I know you mentioned Jennifer Grey earlier, but, you know, Jeannie is just, she's so, she's so jealous. And it's not even the fact, I mean, she even says in that scene with, scene with Charlie Sheen, how she, it's not even the fact he's like breaking the rules. It's the fact he's getting away with it. Right. Yes. And, yeah. you know, she's like, she has that line. If I was bleeding out my eyes, you'd make me go to school. still. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was just curious what you thought of that sibling rivalry um, throughout this film. Uh, and yeah, kind of the back and forth they have. I, uh, I am a huge fan of it. Um, it, I have three siblings, so it feels somewhat relatable. Um, I think I'm a little bit more like Jeannie where I'm very much like, well, I have to, I have to follow the rules. You have to follow the rules. That's not fair. Um, but I could see one of my brothers behaving. Actually, last night, my brother's name is Casper and my little sister was watching with me last night. And she said, Ferris is just like Casper. Like there was a moment where we were like, wow. <laughs> um, so there is, there is some relatability in that. I think, um, I think Jeannie is like a little too grouchy, but sort of in this way that John Hughes writes adults in this sort of like they're sort of like stupid um they're kind of oblivious which I think is part of the reason that teenagers love John Hughes movies is like he his dad really drove down the street next to him and didn't know it was him like he's just in his own world um and so Jeannie is sort of the audience I think where we are we are she's in between where she's a little too mature for a teenager but she's not stupid. She's not in the adult world of John Hughes yet, right? So I'm a, I'm a big fan of, and what I do love is that by the end, she comes around for him um, because who does she hate more than Ferris? Mr. Rooney, of course, um, which is just a great way to round up their relationship. And I like to imagine that like moving forward, they had a better relationship. I don't know, um, but I like to imagine that it changed their dynamic. Well, in a sense, we all want to be Ferris, the avatar for the audience, and possibly Hughes himself, is actually Cameron. Cameron is the reason the movie works, I think. Because, again, Cam because Cameron's willing to go along with Ferris, then we are willing to go along with Ferris. Um, and Cameron is the one that we can all relate to, whereas Ferris is the one that we wish we were, of course. And it is interesting that there are friends. I think that without the movie, without Cameron, the movie would not work. And there is that theory, which I don't really believe in, but there is that theory that Ferris is like a figment of Cameron's imagination, right? Um, which is an interesting way to look at the movie. Um, I don't think it works because there's a lot of scenes without Cameron. But if there weren't, then, you know, I think it has some legs to it. Um, and in that way, like, yeah, Cameron needs Ferris, um, which I suppose we all learned by the end when he's when he says like, yeah, I'm gonna take the fall for this. Like, I have to do this. I have to stand up to my dad because yeah, his parents aren't around. And in contrast, Ferris's parents are doting over him. Um, his house looks like a museum, you know. Like, what a not what a bad way to grow up. And I love the I love when he's sick and he looks he the way he's laying in his bed like it's a coffin. It's, they're very dramatic back and forth and Ferris is drinking his like you know coconut drink or whatever um but yeah I think Cameron is the highlight of the movie yeah and I, and I, I love the George Peterson call too it's it's so good it's yeah so good. <laughs> 
Cameron, Cameron's at, see, you're, you're just an asshole. And all this. <laughs> so great. I have a friend who every year my birthday, he calls me and talks in that voice to wish me happy birthday, oh, which awesome. is very sweet. <laughs> that's awesome. That's incredible. Um, but, uh, you know, you mentioned the car and the Ferrari is, you know, such an interesting uh, piece of this movie. And not, not only the fact, is it like a status symbol that like, you know, Ferris wants to, uh, you know, drive around Chicago in and all that. But it's also this, you know, this physical connection uh, between Cameron and his dad and also this, like, basically physical reminder of that Cameron can never, can only aspire to be that, have that le- level of love um, from his dad. Yes, so, what a good way to put it, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, and what did, what did you think of the use of the the Ferrari in this? And you, I know you mentioned that scene where he ends up kicking it over and kind of uh, destroying the car and kind of breaking that bond finally. But you know, what did you think of Cameron's, you know, processing of that and also just using the car in that way to kind of showcase that divide between him and his dad? Yeah, I think, I think it's a, it's great because it's it's a good way to show the relationship between him and his dad. I've never actually thought about it that way. That's such a good way to think about it, that it is like a physical piece that is basically keeping them apart. And I do like when Ferris says something to the effect of like, a man with priorities so out of whack, he shouldn't, he doesn't deserve this car. And I think that's a really nice way to look at it, even though Ferris has no business taking this car. He's such a jerk sometimes. <laughs> but like, yeah like you don't love your son you love this car like we're taking the car like it's almost like punishment for the dad um which there is the end when Cameron says like well if I couldn't handle it I wouldn't let you take the car and that's I don't know if like that drastic of a change in Cameron is what the movie has been leading up to um but there it's like very honorable that it happens and Cameron's just like, yeah, I'm going to deal with this, which is very different than him when he's sick at the beginning and he just seems to be like completely passive um, and that he's like sort of inspired to stand up to his dad. And I, I didn't grow up with a parent relationship like that, but I'm guessing that there are people who didn't, that that felt very inspiring to them that, wow, that guy fucked up so bad. He, he destroyed his dad's Ferrari like I can stand up to my parents when they do this or that to me right so I I hope that that's how it played off to people and not in a more negative way but to me always as a teenager at least it was just like the most dramatic thing that could have happened was like the car crashes through the window and it just seemed like a great finale to that particular storyline how much, because um, the one moment um, that I can think of that maybe kind of tells us that ending is coming is that scene at the Art Institute where he's, you know, Cameron is having this like existential crisis in real time yeah. where he's staring at the painting and it keeps going and that girl is screaming or whatever. Um, I mean, how do you feel like that moment, or, or I guess, do you feel like that moment kind of, uh, kind of helps us infer what is to come and kind of, I guess, tells us a little about you know, where Cameron is kind of at mentally. Yeah, well, yeah, it's such a fantastic visual representation of Cam, because of course the movie is about, okay, we're graduating. What Cameron's like, I don't, I'm not interested in anything. I don't know what I'm going to do. So to have him stare down that little girl and just like 
zooming in and in and in and in until she's just dots and this like feeling for him that he's like oh, I'm just dots you know what I mean like that everything breaks down to something little I yeah that definitely does I suppose I hadn't thought of it that way either that this leads us to the change in him that yeah you you've sort of shocked me for a second because I just haven't thought about it that way but that's such a good way to look at that scene um is that that's before the parade uh I believe so yes so that's before he like discloses to Sloan that he's just like kind of worried because he doesn't know what he's gonna do which sort of is another yeah it's sort of like he's getting out of his depressive state at the beginning and he's like admitting that he does he doesn't know what he is, um, which is very human um, and very relatable. Uh, yeah, I've never thought about it being a little bit of foreshadowing to that final scene, but that's a really good way to look at it. I really like that. Um, and, and you kind of tapped into something there, but my follow-up to that is, you know, that, that conversation between him and Sloan at the parade, and, you know, she asks him, like, what are you interested in? He says, nothing. And they say, she says, me neither. And, you know, we have that earlier scene where Ferris on a whim proposes to her and she's like, yes. I'm not getting married now. What are you talking about? And there, there's just this palpable feeling of not even just like senioritis where like, oh, they just want to get out of school. Like, I guess to a certain extent, that's true. But there's also just that that feeling, as you were mentioning, of, you know, that uncertain future. And I was just curious, how do you feel like this film captures that uncertainty of, you know, not only like, Cameron and Ferris going off to college but also how Ferris and Sloan are going to work out or how yeah. all these different moving pieces there I think I think the proposal scene is one of the best ways that he captures it where he says do you want to get married and she says sure and then he's like today and she's like I'm not getting married it's that thing of like yeah I'll do that well, should I do that like you just it's very unsure um and at the end though she's like he's gonna marry me so like they all know like what they want I suppose to an extent but it's just like how do you get there is it the right choice which is very much how it feels all the time actually not just to be young but like everything you do as an adult is this the right choice is this what I should do um I think I think that scene is like the perfect capture of it that she just says sure which is so passive but we know that she is in love with him um kind of she's not a very well-written character she's sort of the most disappointing part of the movie as an adult um but i yeah just saying sure to someone asking you to get married is very it's very high school to me that i don't know what to do i don't know what's next i think he captures it really well so yes this is probably the greatest senior skip day of all time just sprinkled with some existential crises these characters have to sort through in other words, a classic coming-of-age story. The reason to watch this movie is because I think that there are reason movies are classics, and this one is more palatable than a classic like Citizen Kane. Like This movie takes you for a ride, and it's a good time, and you're not going to feel bad after watching it. So there's sort of no reason not to watch it. Um, but I think... I've tried to learn not to overhype movies or like TV shows. Like whenever I tell somebody to watch Barry, I'm like, you have to watch the show. It's the best show on television. And then I'm like, I shouldn't say that. 
because people are going to have too high expectations but I, I think if it was a friend, I would just say like, this movie is super important to me. It's important to me that you watch it. And also I, I love watching the people who haven't seen it because it's really fun to experience it for the first time again. And to see how other people react to the reveal that it's Cameron or the parade scene, like stuff that is so iconic. Yeah, I would probably tell someone like, please can I watch this movie with you? I'll make you dinner. That would be my pitch. <laughs> Coming up next on the Formative Films Project, coming-of-age stories from the college and post-grad years. Francis Ha, ever since I watched it, I just get the same things, but also like different things out of it every single time I watch it. It's like such a level of like comfort for me at this point. I've just never watched anything quite like it. For me, Spring Breakers is timeless. It's The movie is not timeless. It will always be my youth in that movie because that's when I was growing up and that's those are the sights and sounds of it. So for me, it's going to be timeless. And I'm still figuring shit out. We're all just figuring shit out. And I guess that's something why I'm, I also gravitate a lot to The Graduate because in a sense, it's reassuring to know that you're not the only one that is lost and figuring things out.